0: Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. McCloskey and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. This podcast will introduce the Industrial Revolution and take a look at its philosophical, social, and cultural underpinnings. One of the Renaissance's most important thinkers was Francis Bacon. He was born in January 1561. At the time of his birth, his father was the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal of England, one of the nation's highest political positions. His mother was one of the most educated and accomplished women of her time. At the ripe old age of twelve, Francis, with his older brother Anthony, entered Trinity College, Cambridge. Completing his studies in just two years, in 1575, Francis and his brother were admitted to the Honorable Society of Gray's Inn essentially a residential law school and office building. Gray's Inn was the largest and most prestigious of the four inns that controlled entrance to Britain's legal profession. However, instead of immediately taking up residence, Francis accepted an appointment as an attaché to the English Ambassador to France. As part of his duties, he developed secret codes, known as cipher systems, for the Queen's intelligence service. One of the systems he created was the bilateral cipher. In the 1830s, this code inspired Samuel Morris to develop a system of dots and dashes used in telegraph systems that started to speed communications throughout the United States. It also inspired the binary numeric system that has operated computers since their inception in the 1940s. But more about that in another podcast. When he returned to England in 1577, at the ripe old age of 16, Francis entered Gray's Inn. After completing his studies, he was appointed to complete an MP's term in the House of Commons. He remained a member of that August body for the next 40 years. Queen Elizabeth was so enamored with his legal and political skills that she created a new position for him. Counsel learned extraordinary, essentially the Queen's private attorney. These two roles gave him both political influence and powerful access to the crown. Over the next twenty-five years, he leveraged these roles to rise steadily in the ranks of British bureaucracies. Eventually, he held his father's title of Lord Keeper of the Great Seal of England, and went from there to the position of Lord Chancellor, the highest political office in the nation at the time. In 1603, as part of the celebration of King James I's coronation, Francis was knighted, along with 299 others. In 1621, he was accused of accepting gifts from litigants he was supposed to be prosecuting. Although there was some evidence that he was set up by those in Parliament who sought to reduce his influence at court, he confessed to the charge of corruption, was fined £40,000, and sentenced to several years in the Tower of London. However, after serving only four days, his sentence was commuted, and he was eventually pardoned. His political career in tatters, Sir Francis Bacon retired to Gorhambury, just northwest of London, in modern-day Hertfordshire. It was here that he pursued his lifelong infatuation with science. Between 1621 and his death five years later, he wrote prolifically. His most important work was Novum Organum, a book that serves as the philosophical underpinnings of the modern scientific method of inquiry. So, even though he died a century before it began, why is Sir Francis Bacon so important to the Industrial Revolution? Keep listening for the answer. The significance of the Industrial Revolution cannot be overstated. Although it originated in merry old England, it affected every part of the world. It provided justification for the growth of liberal and progressive policies and, conversely, of social Darwinism. It created an atmosphere conducive to the development of socialism, its cousin Marxism, and labor unions. It forced social changes like the virtual elimination of the traditional aristocracy, while creating a class system composed of a powerful middle class, a poverty-stricken working class, and a barely surviving peasant class. Although it began in the rural agricultural sector, it built an environment that demanded the development of social programs that we take for granted today. Programs like police and fire departments, along with public health activities like city water and sanitary sewer systems, not to mention the medical field of epidemiology. It supported capitalism with financial systems that developed access to raw materials, new markets, and investment opportunities in manufacturing, transportation, and communication during the middle to late eighteen hundreds these financial systems forced political and social developments like the rise of nationalism imperialism and militarism these developments contributed to a series of overlapping alliances between various european countries which in turn led to the outbreak of world war I and the emergence of the united states as a world economic and political leader So, having bragged about all these important ways that the Industrial Revolution impacts our lives today, we need to understand exactly what the Industrial Revolution was, what it was not, and the social and cultural situation that motivated England to start the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the early 1700s, Europe was mired in medieval and social and political structures that had existed for centuries. These structures were based on the concept of a royal crown that ruled with absolute power. Those who did great service to the crown received land as a reward. They were expected to work the land with the serfs who lived on it. Thus, particularly in rural areas, power laid in the aristocratic landowner. That said, there were skilled craftsmen and merchants who operated outside of the predominantly rural agricultural-based system that the medieval aristocracy depended on for its power. These skilled craftsmen organized guilds, which then grouped together in towns and cities to better share the resources needed to produce their various skills and products. Some who study the origin of words say the term guild was derived from the old Saxon word gilden, which means to pay or yield. Others say it came from the old Norse gildi, which means brotherhood. And a third group claims it evolved from the pre-German Gelde, which means payment or contribution. This last term is said to also be the source of the modern word money. Taken together, you can get an idea of the role the guilds played. They were, in essence, professional associations or brotherhoods of skilled artisans who produced similar products or services. Guilds protected the knowledge, then called their arts or mysteries, of their field to share capital, and for protection from marauding thieves and highwaymen. In return for the support of the guild, each member paid a percentage of their income as dues. By 1600, there were over 100 different guilds in England, and even more in other European kingdoms. These guilds created a sort of medieval middle class. They were not peasants, and they were not aristocrats, but some were quite wealthy. Because society depended on their knowledge and skills, the guilds became politically powerful, particularly in more urban areas. In 1612, the King of Britain, James I, granted a charter to the guilds of London. This charter authorized the guilds to organize a council to provide protection and other social services we expect a government to provide today. The Charter also granted them the privilege of creating their own rules and regulations so long as their local laws did not conflict with the Crown's proclamations and rulings. London was one of the first cities to receive this type of control from the Crown. Today, towns awarded this form of governance are known as Home Rule Communities because their day-to-day activities were controlled by leadership at home instead of the distant sovereign. So... By the early 1700s, we have the rural areas controlled by the aristocratic landowners and the urban areas controlled by powerful guilds. Both acted under the authority of the crown, although autonomous from it. Now, this period we've been talking about is not the Industrial Revolution, or even the Enlightenment, but the closing decades of the Renaissance. The Renaissance itself is generally viewed as a period that focuses on the revival of classical cultures with emphasis on the arts the ancient Greeks, Romans, and, to a lesser extent, Egyptians. Therefore, we often fail to include science in our concept of the Renaissance. This view shortchanges our understanding of the era. In fact, science made great strides during this period, so much so that the scientific advancements during this period are referred to as the scientific revolution. During the 15 and 1600s, men like Nicholas Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler, and Galileo Galilei redefined the position of the earth in the cosmos. Their version went well beyond the medieval position of the church in its earth-centric definition of the universe, a definition that had its roots in ancient Greece, particularly in the writings of Plato. Well, a Greek philosopher by the name of Atarskis of Samos, who lived around 300 BCE, did argue that the earth circled the sun but his position did not gain much credence. One of Artiscus's contemporaries expressed a more popular viewpoint when he described the Earth as a flat disk floating inside a ball. However you view that pre-Renaissance view of the cosmos, the astronomers, mathematicians, and philosophers of the scientific revolution also created additional STEM-related fields. For example, Kepler's efforts to place his and his contemporaries' astronomical findings into mathematical equations eclipsed Ptolemy's earthly mathematical models of the solar system. In the process, he created the modern fields of celestial mechanics and optics. But, taken as a whole, the most important contribution of the scientific revolution was the way these Renaissance scientists began to separate science, or the study of how the world works, from religion or the study of why the world exists. One of the principal leaders in this era was Sir Francis Bacon, who promoted the idea of experimentation as a tool to understanding the world. Bacon's idea of experimentation illustrates the desire to try different techniques to understand the worldview that developed during the late Renaissance. As the Renaissance began to transform itself into the Enlightenment, the great philosophers of the new era simply took Bacon's concept and applied it to philosophical and social realms of study, giving voice to great philosophers of the age like René Descartes, Barack Spinoza, Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, Adam Smith, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and later Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, and Benjamin Franklin, to name just a few. In fact, The Enlightenment is also known as the Age of Reason because of the way it stressed logic and reason in our efforts to understand the way the world works. So now you know Sir Francis Bacon's connection to the Enlightenment. The Industrial Revolution developed in parallel with the Enlightenment. Since its goal was to develop new techniques to control the world around us, as opposed to just understanding it, it reflected the same principles of logic and reason that underpinned the Enlightenment. There is a growing attitude among historians and philosophers that the Industrial Revolution was simply another expression of the Enlightenment. Other podcasts on this subject will demonstrate experimentation's role in developing the technologies that drove the Industrial Revolution, thus bringing Bacon's contribution to not only the Enlightenment, but to the Industrial Revolution itself. Most historians place the start of the Industrial Revolution at around 1760. In the Americas, that's right smack in the middle of the French and Indian War. They also locate its origin in England. Why England? The Dutch had led the way in mercantilism for centuries. Similarly, French monks in the Fontenay Abbey had been using water wheels to run their iron foundries forge since at least the 1100s these technologies often credited with starting the industrial revolution had been around for centuries so it would seem that either france or belgium would be further down the road to industrialization than the relatively remote england this being the case why in the mid seventeen hundreds and why england the answer to these two questions are found in the merger of about five or six seemingly unrelated circumstances Politically, England's experimentation with republicanism during the short reign of Oliver Cromwell from 1649 to 1653 opened minds and hearts to experimenting with new things. Also in the 1800s, because they had experienced life without a royal, the English were free to work on economic and social reform while the rest of Europe was plagued by civil wars as feudalism floundered. Economically, the country had the natural resources such as coal, iron ore, and developed farmlands needed to establish an industrial base without external support. Also, the creation of British banking in the late 16th and early 1700s provided a mechanism for funding not only the mines needed to access these raw materials, but the research needed to fully exploit them. Culturally, island living encouraged the creativeness needed to develop new technologies like the steam engine and textile machinery. The same creativity encouraged a growing business class separate from the landed gentry or the guilds with the vision to see the economic potential of new ventures, and who, with the protection of the banking system, had the courage to risk their excess capital on bringing new economic endeavors into reality. Improved farming techniques, like the four-field rotation system that were implemented a generation before the Industrial Revolution, created a healthier population with the ability to expand personal and family resources that filled the needs of the Industrial Revolution's factories. Finally, the division between urban and rural areas fostered creativity in the poor regions. The goal of the guilds to protect the trade secrets of their crafts inhibited creativity among the artisan trades and worked against the evolution of new production techniques. However, the goals of the aristocracy to exploit the resources of the crown had deeded them actually fostered the inventiveness needed to develop new techniques and the machinery to implement them. Therefore, the Industrial Revolution started not in the cities, but in the country. So, by the early 1700s, Britain was ripe for change. The Industrial Revolution became the most transformational event in Western society in a millennia. It changed the way we dressed, worked, learned, cooked, traveled, and lived, and even died. Tune in to our next episode, where I will be talking about the start of this most important period in Western, European, and American history. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.